As was mentioned, today's sermon, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. I'm going to read starting at verse 21. There we go. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and who had spent all she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who had said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And when he... And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion of people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, And he went to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. I've only been starstruck in my life one time from meeting a celebrity or someone famous. That person was Troy Palomalu. I got to meet Troy when I was about 19 or 20 years old. And those of you, there he is on the screen there. Those of you who don't know Troy, Troy is a former Steelers player. He's probably the best to ever play at his position. And this fall, he's going to get inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. What I really appreciate about Troy is that anytime you hear one of his teammates or a former coach or a member of the media talk about Troy, they always say that Troy was actually a better person than he was a player, which is pretty astounding because he's probably the best, like I said, to ever play at his position. Now, Troy uh, is a Christian, very devout, 
if you listen to interview with his teammates, they nicknamed him Baby Jesus. And if you watch uh, old film of Troy playing, you, if you see any time they zoom in on his face, a lot of times he's actually praying in between plays and making the cross gesture on his chest. So very devout, very strong Christian, and certainly beloved in the city of Pittsburgh. Played his whole career in Pittsburgh, Hall of Famer, great person, great player, right? He's, he's the total package. Uh, what's interesting about Troy is that uh, I've known a couple people who were close to him and who lived kind of near him in his former neighborhood. And despite his fame, uh, Troy wanted to live a pretty normal life. It's rumored that he drove a Kia. No offense to anyone if you drive a Kia, but perhaps not the car of choice for most other multi-millionaire NFL superstars. And this friend of mine one time told me that Troy was at Kennywood, uh, it probably was at least five years ago, but he was at Kennywood with his kids, just trying to have a normal day, let his kids ride the rides. And so to avoid being seen by people, Troy wore these big sunglasses that covered up his face, and he wore a hoodie, and he tucked his hair into it so no one could see it's him. If you can see in the picture there, Troy was known for his hair that like flowed down to his back. But basically, he was in disguise. And Troy's not a huge guy, so if he covers his face, covers his hair, you probably wouldn't recognize him. So Troy was at Kennywood about five years ago. My friend noticed him. He didn't blow his cover, but he was like, yeah, he was just trying to blend in and, and be a normal person and, and fit into the crowd and allow his kids to enjoy a day at a theme park. Now, I imagine what would have happened that day if Troy took off his glasses, he pulled off his hoodie, let his hair flow out, and let himself be revealed. A local legend, a Hall of Fame player, greater person, beloved in the city. He would have been totally mobbed by people and probably wouldn't have been able to get anywhere, which is why he disguised himself. The crowd that Troy would have got was probably only a fraction of the crowd that Jesus has attracted in this passage. In Mark, so far, we've seen Jesus going around, healing, doing miracles, driving out demons, and he's followed by a great crowd that are seeing miracle after miracle, healing after healing. The passage says that he's thronged, meaning he's just crushed in by people wanting to get close to him. And in this passage, in chapter 5, that sort of crazy series of events that's making Jesus famous, the pattern here is continuing. Now, my concern is, is that we'll read a passage like this, and we'll just come away amazed by the miracles. Like, I'm sure a lot of the people in the crowd were just amazed by the miracles that Jesus was doing. But we'll miss what I think the true miraculous nature of this passage is. I think there's something deeper that Mark is wanting to impress upon us, and that ultimately Jesus wants to show to us. And just like it's a shame when I hear people talk about Troy Palamalu and they only say that he was a great football player, I think it would be a shame if we left this passage and we only thought of Jesus as a miracle worker or a healer or a physician. So when we look at this passage, we'll just break down the different interactions. We'll look at his interaction with the woman. We'll look at his encounter with Jairus. And I want to kind of contrast the, the differences between how he approaches both of those situations because both of them on the part of the woman and on the part of Jairus are displays of faith. So I want to see how Jesus responds to those different displays of faith. But then I want us to look at what I would call, uh, there's, there's two miracles that are obvious, but I'd say there's a subtle miracle that happens in this passage that's instructive for us. So let's start first by looking at his encounter with the woman. Uh, this encounter starts by Jesus uh, crossing a boat to the other side, the other side that's mentioned in this passage, most likely Capernaum. And the reason I say that is because Jesus directly encounters Jewish leaders and a Jewish man named Jairus. So that's where we first hear about Jairus. He requests for his daughter to be healed. 
and Jesus agrees to go with him to lay hands on his daughter. But then, this is the first thing we'll look at, is the encounter with the woman. So he's interrupted on his way to heal the ruler of the synagogue's daughter. Now what's interesting is that this text names Jairus by name, a synagogue leader named Jairus, but the woman is just a woman. And I think that speaks to her standing in that day. Uh, She's probably desperate at this point in her life. She's probably poor. And she probably has Jesus' healing touch as her only hope to actually be delivered from her affliction. It says in the passage there that she suffered under many doctors for 12 years and never got well. She spent all she had, which speaks to probably her level of poverty, but she only got worse. Now, if this woman was following the religious laws and customs of the day, like you'll read in Leviticus 15, she shouldn't be around people. She has to distance herself. She has to declare that she's unclean. She would be ceremonially unclean if she touched anyone. So really, if she's following the customs of the day, she should be living as an outcast. No friends, no family, very little or no religious participation. Now, what's interesting is I've heard that faith, which is what this woman displays, faith is activated by a lack of options. This woman has, for her healing, certainly no other options. And that's perhaps why she approaches Jesus with such audacity. Like I said, in in her approach to Jesus, she's breaking all of the religious laws and customs of the day. She's in a crowd, a great crowd, where Jesus is being thronged, so she's probably bumping up against and touching other people, which she shouldn't be doing. She's interrupting, and she's getting in the way of a religious leader of the day. She interrupts Jesus on his way to heal someone, which we could say is perhaps just plain rude. Jesus is going to do something, and she just like grabs on him to him. And she touches a man, right? The the male-female dynamic. She touches a man without his permission. And her hypothesis in all this audacity is that if I touch this man who I've heard about, this Jesus, I'll be healed. And she's right. It says that immediately her issue of blood stops and she feels healing in her body. Now, Jesus' reaction to this is, is perhaps a bit cryptic. He says, who touched me? Which is almost impossible to answer because he's in a big crowd. He's being thronged. Again, think of like someone, a celebrity like Troy Palamalu, like Kennywood. People are just pushing up against him, trying to get close to him. So the question, who touched me, is almost impossible to answer which is why I think we should view it as rhetorical. Jesus looks around, and the woman, who Mark doesn't even give a name to, identifies herself. And as you can imagine, and as the passage says, she's afraid. She's breaking all the rules. She's out among people where she shouldn't be. She touched this religious leader who's been doing all these miracles. She touched Jesus, and she got her healing. And imagine if you were there, You had 12 years of affliction, 12 years of sickness, and immediately it stopped. You've paid all these doctors, they haven't been able to solve the issue, and immediately you got what you wanted, and you're probably gonna try to sneak off, get out of there without anybody really knowing, and Jesus stops, like the kind of a record scratch moment. He's like, who touched me? And so she says it was me. She tells her, she tells Jesus the whole truth. I like how the passage says it there. And she's probably thinking while she's telling Jesus this whole truth that you know, maybe he's going to make me pay for what I got from him. Maybe he's going to beat me up. Maybe he's going to shame me, right? He made the entire interaction stop. But when she tells this whole truth, where she's probably explaining, apologizing, trying to compensate for all the rules she's broken, Jesus is in a position right now to banish her, 
to send her away, to beat her up, or worse. But he responds to that whole truth with an infinitely more beautiful and grace-filled response. He starts by elevating her identity. She's unnamed in the passage, a woman, but Jesus starts by calling her daughter, which is very striking, meaning that in the world where you should have been isolated, alone, no family, no one you could be close to because of this affliction, now you're part of a royal family. He starts by saying, daughter, your faith has made you well. You had no other options in this world. You spent all you can trying to get better, and you turned to Jesus as your only hope for healing. And Jesus says, in a sense, you've come to the right place. What we can see and what we can perhaps learn from this passage is how Jesus responds to faith. This woman was not healed because of the strength of her faith. She wasn't healed because of the orthodoxy of her faith or the purity of her faith. She was saved by the object of her faith. In her own rude, law-breaking, audacious way, she put her trust in Jesus, and he responded by welcoming her into a royal family. I've had many friends whose testimonies have started the same way, drunk, strung out on drugs, in a prison cell, doing what they shouldn't be doing, around the people they shouldn't be around, breaking all the rules, but they cried out to Jesus because he was their only option. And he had mercy on them. And he'll have mercy on us today if we cry out to him and admit our need for him. And he welcomed the woman, and he'll welcome us too as a part of a royal family and as a part of a priesthood of believers where we're no longer alone, we're no longer unclean, but we're welcomed. And we have an identity now. Son, daughter, and for us to each other, sister, brother. Jesus is saying, welcome to the family. And that's what he says to each of us if we cry out to him for mercy. Welcome to the family. I want to give a a, a brief explanation of a part in this passage that may be uh, a a bit difficult to understand. Um, When Jesus says, who touched me? And he says he perceived that power went out from him. It doesn't mean that the woman stole something from Jesus against his will, or that the woman's faith merited a response from Jesus. Jesus has been healing a lot of people and driving out a lot of demons these last few chapters, and it's been people of all different social standing and religious standing. But Jesus actually confirms the healing when he encourages the woman to go in peace. He says, go in peace, your faith has made you well. Previously, before he said that, it said she only was described as feeling healed. But Jesus ultimately had the final say, had the final authority in her healing. So practically, what this means for us at Eternal City Church, uh, a, a lot of us who maybe have had experience in church before, the topic of healing is addressed a, a lot of different ways. But here's where we stand on praying and believing for healing. We affirm that we want to have faith for healing, just like the woman had faith and said, if I can only get too close to Jesus, he can heal me. But we leave the authority of healing to God. So in James 5, we're told this directly. There we go. In James 5, we're told directly, if someone's sick, let the elders pray for them, anoint them with oil. But notice that even in James 5, the authority of who's raised up, who's healed, is left to the Lord. So when praying for the sick, our job as Christians is to exercise faith. And the Lord's job is to exercise authority. 
What that means is that healing could happen now immediately, just like it did for the woman in the passage. It could happen five years from now through perseverance and prayer and continued even intervention medically. Or it could happen in heaven when we get our glorified bodies and we're healed and delivered from every disease. But as Christians in an eternal city church, our job in the healing process is to exercise faith. Jesus can heal us, any one of us, at any moment with a touch. It could be five years from now. It could be when we receive our glorified bodies. But our job is to walk in faith and allow God, as God is in this passage, exercising his authority over when, specifically, we're healed. So faith can look different, right? It looked one way, as we saw with the woman with the issue of blood. She had a very desperate situation. She reached out. She touched his garment. She was healed immediately. Jairus approaches the situation and approaches his need for healing in his family a bit different. We first meet Jairus at the feet of Jesus. He's begging for healing, or the passage says he's imploring Jesus for healing for his sick daughter. Now, what's different about Jairus is Jairus says, you know, if only, let me go back, if only uh, he'll lay his hands on my daughter, she'll be healed. So he's, he's, he's asking a bit differently, hey, come and lay hands, and perhaps he was a bit uh, skeptical of who Jesus was. So he says, no, if you come, you pray, you lay your hands on her, I think she'll be healed. The woman said, I'll just touch him and I'll be healed. So while Jesus is ministering to this woman with the issue of blood, the situation for Jairus seems to have gotten worse. If we pick up in verse 35, there is um, now a representative from Jairus' house coming and saying, no, don't, don't, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. Let's not bother him. And Jesus says, in a comforting way, that to only have faith and not be afraid. So while that news from the, the house may have devastated Jairus, Jesus is walking and assuring Jairus that she'll be okay. Now what's interesting is he narrows the amount of people that are allowed to come and see this miracle. Only Peter, James, and John. And perhaps he narrows it because there's already a crowd that's around him. There's a crowd of people, as we see in the passage in 39 and 40, that are already at Jairus' house. So perhaps he doesn't want to have just a big commotion of two crowds clashing and it just creates something that's unmanageable. But what's interesting about the crowd at Jairus' house is that they are mourning, they're wailing, they're making a commotion. And notice when Jesus arrives at the house, his statement about the child not being dead makes them laugh. So customary for the day actually was to have paid mourners at your house for a funeral. They would wail, they would make noise, someone would play a flute. And so when Jesus says she's not dead, she's only asleep, they laugh because they're probably not actually genuinely mourning someone's death. They're just paid to be there. But now they're probably interested, all right? Like, this guy said he's going to heal and raise this girl from the dead. Very interesting. But Jesus puts everyone outside. He only takes a small group in with him, brings the child mother, brings the child's father, and we see it. We see another miracle. Talitha, kumi means little girl or little lamb, arise, get up. It's a term of endearment, almost like saying baby girl or sweetheart. And perhaps with that term of endearment, Jesus is foreshadowing the rising of another lamb who would get up from the dead to our amazement. But notice again, whose authority Jesus does this miracle by. He doesn't say in the name of so-and-so God or in the name of so-and-so higher power. He says, I say to you, arise. Again, he's demonstrating and exercising his ultimate authority 
in his ultimate display of power over sickness and death and demonstrating that he would be the ultimate lamb who would arise to our amazement. Baby girl, I say to you, little girl, little lamb, I say to you, arise. Jesus in this passage again is demonstrating his authority over sickness and death. And immediately, everybody's amazed, but Jesus charges them. This is the kind of messianic secret again. Don't tell anyone. And then I like at the end, he tells her, give her something to eat. Almost, if it, almost as if like everyone's standing there shocked and he's like, no, she's been asleep, like she's hungry. Let her have some food. Pick your, pick your jaws up off the floor. Give this girl something to eat. So in addition to imploring them to give her food, he again tells them, don't tell anybody about this, which is a contrast against the man, Legion, who, who, had, the, who had the demons. He says, uh, go and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. But perhaps why Jesus is trying to keep this interaction a secret is because he's been doing all these miracles. He's been raising the dead. He's been healing the sick. He's been driving out demons. But I think what he's getting at is that this king, his kingship and his kingdom are bigger than just simply miracles. And if we only focus on the miracles that are happening in this passage, I think we'll miss a deeper point. Before we get to that deeper point, I want to point out a few similarities and contrasts between the two interactions we just saw. Uh, the first is a number, and that number is 12. The woman with the issue of blood suffered for 12 years. Jairus' daughter, the passage says, was 12 years old when she faced death. 12 in the Bible is a number of completion. It means a, a complete, you know, 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel, right? 12 is showing that the woman had suffered to a, 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 a a point of completion. The girl had lived a life that we thought was complete, but Jesus in both of those situations demonstrate his healing authority and extends the life and extends the health of situations that we thought were complete and that were hopeless. The woman with the issue of blood from a social standpoint was a poor outcast. She had no one to be able to help her. Jairus was most likely rich. He's a well-known teacher. He's named in the passage so people know who he is, but Jesus shows them both mercy. Jairus comes to Jesus in public, lays himself at Jesus' feet. The woman in secret by just reaching out, trying to touch his robe and sneak away. And Jesus shows them both mercy. Jairus asks Jesus again to come lay hands on his daughter. The woman says, if I just get close and I touch him, I'll be healed. And Jesus shows them both mercy. He gives his healing authority to both of their imperfect displays of faith. Now, while both of these scenarios are without a doubt miraculous, at the end, again, Jesus tells Jairus, don't tell anyone. And I think he's downplaying the miracles because again, I think there's something greater at play here than just physical healing, than just raising people from the dead. There's another aspect to this that I don't want us to miss. King Jesus is greater than just a miracle worker. He's greater than just a physician. I don't want us to leave without missing the secret of our king. Just like I think it's a shame when people say Troy was a great football player, but they don't realize how great of a person he was, it would be a shame if we missed out on one of the secrets of our king. And that secret is this, that the king, our king, King Jesus, the king loves his enemies. It may not jump directly out at us from the passage, but let me explain in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is questioned about fasting and the Sabbath. The particular question about the Sabbath came from the Pharisees, a religious group of the day. 
They asked Jesus and his disciples, why were they allowed to pick grain on the Sabbath? This may seem like an innocuous question, but what they're doing is they're trying to make Jesus out to be a hypocrite. He answers them ultimately by saying, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He has control over it. And this answer was offensive and begins a pattern of hostility that we'll see between Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. As we look to Mark chapter 3, Jesus enters a synagogue and he heals a man with a withered hand. His healing ministry astonished the crowd, but not everyone who was in that crowd in Mark chapter 3. We read in Mark 3 that the Pharisees were there and they joined a group known as the Herodians, a government group who plotted to destroy Jesus. Later on in chapter 3, the scribes accused Jesus of being possessed by a demon. Jesus' preaching and miracle ministry continues into chapter 5 where we see he meets Jairus. Now here, Jairus' title is important. It says that Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue, meaning he oversaw worship. He was responsible for it. So right after Jesus healed that man's hand in chapter 3 and people were plotting to kill him, Jairus may have been there. Jairus, at the very least, was overseeing it, most likely knew about what was going on, and probably heard about this plot to kill and destroy Jesus. And yet, when he comes to Jesus and asks him to heal his daughter, he agrees to do it. He goes with him. We have no evidence of Jairus apologizing or explaining what's going on or trying to give Jesus insight into the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes are ultimately with the Herodians plotting to kill Jesus. He falls at his feet in desperate reverence and Jesus responds and shows mercy. I want us to pause here and just consider what our response would be. Think of someone who's done you great harm, maybe physically, maybe with their words, maybe with their deeds, and they show up at your house at an inconvenient time in the middle of the night. They knock on your door and say, hey, my daughter's sick. Will you come pray for her? What would you do? We see the response of our Savior, and certainly we want to emulate it and be like him. Because what Jesus is modeling here is he's loving his ideological enemy. Not just an enemy, he's loving an ideological enemy. What I mean by that is that Jairus' worldview, his way of thinking, his way of believing, ultimately Jairus, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Herodian, that ideology sought to kill and destroy Jesus. It makes me think of a lot of the competing ideologies today. Imagine Jesus, let's say for the sake of illustration, Jesus is a police officer. Jairus would be an anarchist, someone who wants to destroy cities and see them burn. Those are two competing ideologies that seek ultimately, that, that, that can't coexist. One wants to destroy the other. If Jesus were a lobbyist committed to the sanctity of life and Christian marriage, Jairus would be a radical progressive wanting to do away with all morality in society, two competing ideologies. If Jesus were an activist working for justice and fairness in society, Jairus would be a capitalist who wants to exploit people, not just a capitalist, but one who wants to be, uh, use capitalism to feed his greed and to exploit people and to get rich by himself and not give, anybody, give anything to anyone else, two competing ideologies. If Jesus were someone who advocated Black Lives Matter, Jairus would interrupt him and say, ah, ah, ah. Jesus, all lives matter. Two competing ideologies. And I realize the comparison of those things can make us a bit uncomfortable, make us shift in our chair a bit. And I think the reason for that is that today 
we're told in so many different ways from almost every direction that loving someone means we have to agree with their ideology. That certainly wasn't the case for Jesus. In this example, he's serving a man whose ideology ultimately sought to destroy him. And to correct another misconception, Jesus healing the man doesn't mean that he endorsed his ideology. In fact, we'll see in the coming chapters, and you see it all over the Gospels, Jesus exposes the false religion of the Pharisees and the scribes. His harshest words are reserved for the religious leaders of the day. Brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. But even as he rightly and harshly criticizes his ideological enemy, he loves them. The king loves his enemies. And along the way, while he's going to heal Jairus, his ideological enemy, Jesus meets someone else. He meets the woman with the issue of blood. And we don't know a lot about her ideology or her worldview or the way that she thinks, but we can say she's a different type of enemy. The woman was an inconvenient enemy. Of all the times to stop someone, Jesus is on the way to do this miraculous raising of the dead and healing. Serving your ideological enemy seems like a pretty inconvenient time for someone to stop you. Again, go back to the scenario I, I asked you to imagine yourself in. Someone knocks at your door late at night. They've done you great harm, but you're like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can do. And then on the way to try to pray for this person's daughter, a homeless person stops you and says, hey, I need some help. It's an inconvenient time. And yet, Jesus responds. And he doesn't just allow himself to be stopped. He goes as far as to call out the woman's identity as a member of the royal family. Call her his daughter. While he's on the way to heal his ideological enemy, he stops again and meets another enemy, his inconvenient enemy, and he heals her as well. Both receive a miracle. And I don't think we want to use that miracle or, or allow the miracles that are happening in this passage to look past what I would consider the actual true good news of what's going on here. The good news being that the king loves his enemy. He loves his ideological enemy. He loves his inconvenient enemy. And he loves, he loves us, even though we were his enemies. Romans 5 puts it like this, for while we were enemies... God reconciled, uh, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So all the things that Jesus is doing in this passage and in the book of Mark are leading up to one very important event. And that important event is his death. His death validates this good news that the king truly loves his enemies. Jairus was his ideological enemy and that he participated in a system that ultimately sought to destroy Jesus. And so do we, because the wages of sin is death. Either our ultimate death and being separated from God, or Jesus' death that paid the wages of our sin on the cross through which we can receive eternal life. The woman who Jesus encountered was inconvenient because she interrupted a healing mission that he was on. But even more so, our sin is the ultimate inconvenience in that it broke the unity that God the Father and Jesus had. So we'll read about this in probably way, way down the line. But when Jesus dies on the cross, he cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? He was inconvenienced. He was forsaken. And that was because of our sin. Isaiah 53 puts it like this. Surely he took on our infirmities 
He carried our sorrows. Both of those things are inconvenient. Yet we considered him stricken by God, struck down and afflicted. Again, inconvenient. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. It's good news that Jesus loves his enemy. Because just like Jairus, Oh, Jesus, uh, just like Jesus owed Jairus nothing, and just like Jesus owed the woman nothing, Jesus owes us nothing, and yet the gift of God through Jesus is eternal life. Now that sounds good, but the gospel actually takes it even further. When Jesus went to heal Jairus, he brought along Peter, James, and John. Similarly, when Jesus demonstrates his ultimate love for his enemies on the cross, that's a divine act that also allows us the family of God, to be brought along with him on the same mission. Jesus puts it very plainly in Matthew chapter 5 where he talks about loving your enemies. He says, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? So Jesus' love for his enemies as displayed in this passage and ultimately displayed on the cross, that's not just an act to build our self-esteem. The question for us today as Christians, is will we be known for the same thing that Jesus was known for? Not just his healing ministry, not just his miracle-working power, but his love for his enemies. I mentioned competing ideologies earlier, conservatives and and liberals, traditionalists and activists, social justice people versus conservative-minded people. What's interesting is that almost every ideology today has Christians who would claim that Jesus supports it. Justice-minded people really love Jesus' teaching on compassion and the poor. Progressive, or conservatives really enjoy Jesus' talk about moral purity, personal responsibility. But what neither group and almost any group says when they talk about how Jesus supports their ideology is how we're supposed to love our enemies. And yet today, in our divided age, politically, socially, culturally, racially, perhaps that's the teaching that we all need to heed from Jesus, that we are to love our enemies. And even more importantly, I think a more pressing question is will other Christians who are seen as our ideological enemies be loved? I certainly understand that society is fracturing along many lines, like I said, socially, religiously, uh, racially, economically, what have you. But what I perhaps find more disheartening, and this was brought up actually last night on the prayer call, uh, the lament for racial justice, what, what seems more disheartening is the way that those different ideologies are dividing even the church. Even if we disagree with another believer on something, will we model what Jesus taught? Will we love those who are seen, or at least perceived by us, to be our enemies? If we only love those who love us back, what credit is that to us? If Christians can only love other Christians who look, vote, think, or act like us, what credit is that to us? Again, not saying we can't disagree with each other, not saying we can't correct each other, but what will we be known for? Will we be able to display the same radical love that Jesus displayed for his enemies? Not saying we endorse everything they believe, but will we affirm that they're made in the image of God, that they're worthy to receive mercy, that they're worthy of our time, our attention, and our care. Because Jesus certainly did that. Jesus was known, and ultimately should be known from this passage and from his life and ministry, 
for loving his enemies. Jesus' love for his enemies makes a way for us to love ours. In this passage, Jesus loved his ideological enemy, he loved his inconvenient enemy, and ultimately, as displayed through his act on the cross, he loves us, his enemies. The good news is that the king loves his enemies, and he invites us to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, while there was enmity between us and you, Christ took the first step, laid down his life, and that no greater love has been displayed that he laid down his life for us, his friends. God, will we feel shame, will we feel separation, will we feel unclean? Would you remind us of your mercy that belongs to us in Jesus? Would you remind us that we're members of a royal family, that we're your sons, that we're your daughters? And you, would you remind us, the church, that we are not just sons and daughters, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that your love makes us one, that we are to treat each other as one, to love each other. God, help us to be reminded of who we are in Christ. Help us to live in light of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, help us to love our enemies, to love those who maybe disagree with us, who maybe are different than us, but to display the same love that Jesus displayed and to display faith as well, God. If any of us, God, is facing sickness or death or some situation that seems insurmountable, would you activate faith in us and activate faith in the church to be able to pray a believing prayer, to believe you for healing, be it now, be it in the future, be it when we receive our glorified bodies. But Lord, will we believe you, just as the woman did, that says if we only are touched by your healing touch, that we will receive full deliverance from what seems like a complete issue, a complete issue of suffering or death or affliction. God, allow us to persevere in faith. Allow us to walk in faith and allow us to be reminded that you truly do love us, even though we uh, did things, said things, thought things, were things that made us your enemies. But now we're your sons, now we're your daughters. And if any of us needs to be welcomed into that royal family tonight, will we cry out to you for mercy? And would we, you and your mercy, remind us of what Jesus has done for us. In his name we pray, amen.